We can turn back to the chapter we read there, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1, and especially the, the section beginning at verse 21. But we'll just make some general comments on the incidents that are described here. It's interesting at times to just to look back to see what people did in the past. And one of the emphases that um, was very strong was early piety. That the God's people expected children to be converted. It was just the way things were. They expected it to happen. Now, of course, we find that in the Bible, don't we? There are numerous examples of children who were, to use an adult term, very devout. (coughs) Some of them, it seems to have been almost from birth. An obvious one in that category is John the Baptist. But he's not the only one. And there are some of them that we might think are a bit surprising. Like Samson. But if we read his story, we find that is the case. That right from his, almost from his birth, he belonged to God. There's King Josiah who, if I remember correctly, started to reign when he was eight years old. And although he was so young, he reigned in a righteous way. Daniel and his three friends, taken to Babylon as teenagers. But they already knew what way their lives were going to live. So early piety was common, even in Bible times. And of course we can see that from the way Paul writes his letters. Because in two of them, the letter to Ephesus and the letter to Colossae, he describes children as in the Lord. Which is a very striking way of just explaining who they are. And of course we we are encouraged to expect it by baptism, aren't we? I mean that is in one sense the point of baptism. It's entrance 
into the covenant community. It's entrance into an environment, an atmosphere, where spiritual realities should be obvious. And, of course, we know what Jesus said about young children when the disciples tried to stop them. He said to forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. In the psalm we sung, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Psalm 8, tells us that God loves to hear children's voices in worship. Indeed, it can be noticed from the various um, responses that are made to divine ordinances that, that things that take place in religious activities, that they are all designed for children to ask questions. Passover, the children are meant to ask what's going on. And indeed, Moses tells people when they're out for walks that parents and children should talk about things of God. So it's... Uh, it's all kind of there so that children will ask questions. And of course, the likelihood of that happening should mean that people are ready with answers when they do ask questions. I was looking at... Um, Revivals. We'd all love a revival, wouldn't we? What's going to happen when a real revival comes? Well, the only answer to that question that we can give is look back into the past and see what took place. And one man who wrote about revival experience, because he went through them, was Jonathan Edwards. What happened in his experience? He says this. Let's going to read two quotes. He says this. Very many little children have been remarkably enlightened and their hearts wonderfully affected and enlarged, and their mouths opened, expressing themselves in a manner far beyond their years, and to the astonishment of those who have heard them. Some of them, for many months, have been greatly and delightfully affected with the glory of divine things, and the excellency and love of the Redeemer, with their hearts greatly filled with love and joy in him. And they have continued to be serious and pious in their behavior.
very many little children. And he also, later on in his book, he says this, how great an alteration has been made in some towns, yes, some populous towns, the change still abiding, and how many very vicious persons have been wrought upon so as to become visibly new creatures. God has also made his hand very visible and his work glorious in the multitudes of little children that have been wrought upon. I suppose there have been some hundreds of instances of this nature of late, any one of which formerly would have been looked upon so remarkable so as to be worthy to be recorded and published through the land. I suppose we could ask, what was ahead for the region in which Jonathan Edwards lived? He didn't know the future. But what was the future? Within the lifetime of these young converts. Well, what was in their future was the foundation of the United States. Is it not something worth noticing that decades before it happened, God was at work? And one of the prominent ways he was at work was in the lives of children. Hannah here, she's got lessons to teach us. So I just want to think about some of them briefly today. Who was Elkanah? Elkanah, the father of Samuel. Well, it doesn't really say very much about him here in 1 Samuel. But if we turn to the genealogies and chronicles, we discover he was a Levite. That he was descended from Kohath, the middle son of Levi. Which, of course, tells us that Samuel was a Levite. And I think that is one reason as to why they stayed where they stayed. Because the village where they lived, or the town there called Ramathaim Sophim, it was two days' journey from Shiloh. And Shiloh, of course, is the place where the, the tabernacle was. And Elkanah would have to go up there as a Levite every so often and take part in the services that were there. So here's Elkanah, he's got two wives. One of them has born children and Hannah hasn't. And as we can see, Hannah is very uh, disturbed and uh, distressed about it and she prays. And what does she pray for? Well, her prayer is mentioned there in, in um, 
in verse 11. And it's quite a striking prayer. And we have to bear the, the, time, the kind of time she was in. What kind of environment did Hannah live in? Well, it was the, the, the kingdom of God was very weak. Samuel just follows on from the book of Judges. And if we want to give a title to the book of Judges, we could call it Israel defeated again and again. Once they got rid of one attacker, another one came along and conquered them. And the country was just being constantly affected by all kinds of ideas and influences that were distracting them from worshipping God. And even those who did worship God were not great examples, as we can see from the example of Eli here. I mean, he couldn't actually work out that Hannah was praying. He thought she was drunk. So here's a woman living in dark days. Dark days as far as the culture is concerned, and weak days as far as the church is concerned. So she prays. And she, it's a kind of unusual prayer, isn't it? She's almost initiating a bargain with God. She says to him, if you give me a son, I'll, I'll give him to you. I mean, if we didn't know otherwise, we would almost think here's two equals speaking, making a deal. A kind of transaction. I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit was um, working in her heart to make her present this kind of prayer. But whatever way we look at it, it is a transaction, isn't it? And in her transaction, she puts the initial onus on God and says to him, basically, I can't do what I want to do unless you do it first. She didn't take her situation in providence as a reason not to pray what she prayed. Instead, she said to God, I want to do something for your kingdom, but I can't do it unless you do something first. She's almost saying to God, isn't she? My future depends on what you do. Very brave. Very blunt. 
And it's kind of, her prayer is kind of unusual, given when we remember what her son, if he should be born, what he would be. Her prayer is kind of unusual. Because if God was to answer this prayer, her son would automatically be a Levite. But that's not enough for her. She says, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. But the fact that he's going to be a Levite would mean that he'd be doing something religious anyway. He'd be just like his father, going out every so often to take part in the rituals at the tabernacle. But she wants something far more than that. It's not enough for her that he have this kind of religious career that comes automatically to him. Because we can see from her prayer there that she wants her son to be a Nazarite. It's not enough for her that he be a Levite. In other words, she wants her son to be 100% devoted to the Lord. And that's a challenging prayer in declining times. She's got no idea what her son is going to go through in the future. We know what he went through. Because we know that in his days, there was going to be a huge change in the government method of Israel. And that Samuel was going to be in charge of that process when Saul was announced king and so on. And I think it is fair to say, isn't it, that God prepared for the future by putting a burden on Hannah's heart. She knew nothing about it. She didn't know what was ahead any more than the parents of all these children that were converted in the time of Jonathan Edwards knew what was ahead. And any more than we know what is ahead. Hannah just says to us, pray and dedicate. One man wrote a book on Samuel, I'm sure plenty of men did, but, or women too, but um, one man that wrote a book on Samuel is F.B. Meyer, and he talks about her prayer, and he says this about it. I don't know what you thought of her prayer as we read the chapter. But he points out that her prayer, that all the points are obvious, was heart prayer. I mean, her, there was no voice. 
as she prayed. Her lips were moving, but there was no heart prayer. There was no vo voice in her prayer. It was all heart prayer. Only the Lord could see it. He also points out there was a kind of covenant prayer that's seen in the title she gives to God. She doesn't just say to him, Oh God, the Creator. Oh God, or God, something else. But it's the God of the covenant. In other words, the God of the promises. The God who has said that this country will be a land flowing with milk and honey. And she brings to God's attention his promises. And just does it with one, with one title of God. Calling him Yahweh, Lord in capital letters, is automatically saying to God, you've made promises. So she does that. And the Lord can understand his own name far better than we can. And she brings to his attention the promises he's made. He also point, Maya also points out that her prayer was definite. There's nothing vague about it. She doesn't say, for example, as she goes up every year, she doesn't say something like, Lord bless your people. Which, of course, can be a very good prayer, but it could also be a way of not praying, couldn't it? It's a way to avoid being specific. And Meyer points out that her prayer was very definite. I suppose he didn't say this, but I suppose it was also a very difficult one to expect. Yet she believed it could happen. And he points out as well it was a, a prayer without reserve. Her whole emotional life was involved in it. She wept bitterly. Meyer suggests that her prayer was the fruit of her harvest of sorrow. It's a rather striking way of describing it, isn't it? Her prayer was the fruit of her harvest of sorrow. Years and years of difficulty she had gone through. But still she prayed. And Meyer also points out that this Lady Hannah, her prayer recorded in chapter 2, actually becomes a model for the mother of Jesus. Because Mary's prayer is very similar to Hannah's prayer. So here she is, and just remind us, she 
She's praying about the future she doesn't know. But what she does know is the kind of child she wants to live in the future. And the kind of child that she wants her child to be is someone that's 100% dedicated to God. And we see her dedication uh, to this child starts there in verse 21. Now, the... This chapter doesn't really give many principles about about what Hannah did. And we might might love to know what her ideas were about how how she did things. But we're not told that. Instead, we're only told two things about her. Or even... One thing about her, and one one thing about herself and Elkanah. And the thing that we're told about herself and Elkanah is that there was harmony between them. It just comes out in their conversation that starts there in verse 21. Elkanah says to her, after she makes her suggestion about what she should do, Elkanah just says to her, May the Lord establish his word. He, a Levite by birth, wanted his child, the Lord, to answer the prayer that his wife offered up for their child to be answered abundantly. Hannah, and we may wonder why this detail is pointed out to us. She said, I'm not going up to the tabernacle this year. And she also indicates in her announcement, I'm not going next year either. And she also indicates in her announcement, I'm not going the following year either. Because in Israel, the process of weaning took three years. So for three years, she said, I'm putting everything, as it were, on a shelf. And I'm going to devote myself so that Samuel will be ready to go to the temple, the tabernacle. Not not everybody's called to do that, but she was. She knew, she had promised to God, I'm going to give you, if you give me this child, I'll give him back to you, and he'll serve you all his life in the tabernacle. As she thought about her promise, she didn't say, I'll give him when he's 12. Or I'll give him when he's 21. She said, I'll give him when he's three. 
And so she did that. You could say she adjusted her time to fit in with what would be best for God's kingdom. And that is quite challenging. She adjusted her time to fit in with what's best for God's kingdom. And then the day came, she had to present him to the Lord. Three years of age. No doubt there were emotional pangs. No doubt she found it very hard. Yet, as one reads the passage, we almost get the impression she regards it as a great privilege. Maybe it's my imagination, I don't know. But I wonder why she took three things to sacrifice. She took a bull, and she took flour, and she took wine. Why did she take three things? Why not four? Why not two? And maybe it's just imagination. But did the three things indicate the three years that she had been dedicated to the Lord in privacy, we might say? And here she was coming to offer her son to the Lord in this very public way. I'm sure Eli got the shock of his life. Whatever he thought was going to happen that day, he didn't think he'd have to start arranging for people to look after this uh, three-year-old boy. But he would have had to have done so. But there's Hannah, and she gives what she really values to the service of God. And the extraordinary thing is about Samuel is, isn't it, that we're told at the end of the chapter that although he was three years of age, he was capable of worshipping the Lord. Very striking, very challenging. Hannah says to us, look what is possible with children. And we know what Samuel did. Just a couple of things as we close. Matthew Henry's got a comment on this thing, this incident. And he says this, we ought to take care of our children, not only with an eye to the law of nature as they are ours, but with an eye to the covenant of grace as they are given to God.
the God of the covenant. It's a very precious thing. We know promises are precious. But the value of the promises often depends on the person making them. God has made promises. And so the promises are there for us to plead with them in prayer, like Hannah did. I once was at a baptism, and the man doing the baptism, when he took the child to baptize her, he said, so-and-so, child of the covenant, I baptize you. I've only ever heard that said once by that man. But it was a very striking thing. And the child today is in her 20s and has been a Christian for years. But Hannah says, doesn't she, as Matthew Henry points out, bring your children to the God of the covenant. Another lesson, I suppose, from this is the power of observing prayer. One image comes to my mind about my father. And that was when I found him one day on his knees praying for me. It just sticks in your head. Ralph Davis, who has written commentaries and is well known. Um, speaker and writer he's got a commentary on 1 Samuel and in this verse he says this when I was a child there were times though very few when my father was away this meant my mother would lead family worship in the evening I always half dreaded that because after the scripture was read and we were on our knees, Mum would pray for each of us five boys by name, specifically and in detail, beginning with the oldest down to me, the youngest. I say I half dreaded this because it was difficult to hear the earnest desires of a mother's soul without tears coming to my eyes. Here was a Christian mother on the basis of what she knew and didn't know, making over her sons to the Lord. 
They were hers. But it was more important that they be his. And for that, she prayed. Hannah, in one way, obviously, her situation was unique. She prayed basically for a miracle, and God gave it to her. But in other ways, she's not unique. In other ways, she's a model. And not just to women. She's a real challenge to us about how we pray for the children that we are in this congregation. She is a real challenge, isn't it? We have no idea what life will be like in 40 or 50 years' time. But the one thing we do know that in 40 or 50 years' time we'll need dedicated believers. And what's the best way to have dedicated believers in 40 or 50 years' time? It's to pray now for those who will be God's witnesses then. Hannah says, I had no idea what Samuel would get involved in. I had no idea what he would do, what God would use him for. I just gave him to the Lord. I prayed for him. I devoted myself to him for the short time I had him. And the Lord did the rest. We've got a Sunday school. I hope we pray for each of them every day. Even as Ralph Davis's mother did. Personally. Who knows what the outcome will be? Shall we pray?